I've been here um, preaching. I was officially hired to be the lead pastor in 2004. So that makes it 15 years. It's 2019. And I was told before I became a pastor that one of the hardest jobs is to preach during Christmas time because everybody knows the story. So usually you get three to four different Sundays to preach and, you know, how do we come up with a new way, a new angle on Christmas? And so we tried that for a while, about seven, eight years, we would have different themes. And then Jared and I sat down and we said, let's just keep going through the books we went through. And if it's not really necessarily a passage that deals with Christmas, that's okay. We're here to teach the Bible, what's called exegetically. That means let the Bible determine the message. And so we started in October a study on First and Second Thessalonians. And we were looking through the passages and weren't really thinking about how they would fall necessarily. And Jared said, well, we'll just have a Thessalonians Christmas. I don't know what that means, but we'll see what happens. So this week I started opening up, and we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I am telling you, this is the last passage I would ever pick to preach during Christmas. It is dark, like dark, like really dark. And that's why the title of this message is The Dark Side of Christmas. I think you'll love it. Stand up. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12. And if you're wondering how did we jump to chapter 2, last week we didn't have church. I wanted to play hooky. We skipped. We canceled. And I went Facebook Live. So if you really want to watch last week's, go Facebook Live. You'll love it. Out in the snow. My dog was out there. Some people thought it was a bear. It was fantastic. But here we go. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and a man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them in a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Merry Christmas. You may be seated. This is what you need to read about around the fire on Christmas Eve night. It'll warm your kids' hearts. Satan? Dad, what is this? It's a fascinating passage. But let me ask you this question, first of all. 
What is Christmas? Christmas is Christ's Mass or the celebration or the worship given to Christ. Christ means king or anointed one. So Christmas is the time when we celebrate the king and his arrival, his coming. That's why we have Christmas. Now look at verse 1. Verse 1. Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the king, so this is concerning the coming of the king. So this is a Christmas message. It's a fantastic Christmas message. In fact, believe it or not, if, if you really understood what was going on before Christ came the first time, it's exactly parallel to what's happening here. It patterns exactly. You know this carol. I'll sing it for you, but listen closely to the words. It goes like this. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Then it says this. Who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. And it says rejoice. And the point is, here's Israel mourning in exile waiting for the appearance of the king. And now we have a book in 2 Thessalonians of a church who's in exile. And by exile, it's dark. It's dark. They're getting their property confiscated. Some, I think, are actually uh, taken by Rome to go to be gladiators. Others are being kicked out of families. It's dark. And so the question here is, When's he going to come, and did he already arrive? What's fascinating, I want, I want to talk about his, I'm going to talk about four things. I'm going to talk about his coming, and the pattern of his coming. I'm going to talk about the rebellion to the king. That's really what this is all about. I'm going to talk about the recruitment to join the rebellion, a warning not to. And then the last thing is we're going to talk about his arrival. But when it comes to his coming, this has always been predicted. When I mean coming, I mean Jesus in the flesh, in his body, is going to come on this earth. So the first time he came, he came in the form of a child. The second time he came, he's going to come in form of a warrior. But people didn't know this, actually. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 61. This is called the, it's called the mountain range view of his coming. When Jesus came to this earth, he came in the form of a child. The very first sermon he ever gave, you can find it in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, was this passage, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2a. But he didn't go all the way through 2. And you'll see why in a second. But it's the mountain range of his coming, and I'll explain in a second. So in Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Who are the captives? Those who are captive in sin. He's going to set them free on his arrival, at his coming, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So when he came the first time, joy to the world! The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Favor. But look at the rest of verse 2. And 
the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. When Jesus first gave the message, he didn't read that last part. That's waiting till later. If you drive out, let's say you're going to the Grand Teton Mountains out in the west. You drive down the road. You're about 100 miles away and you start seeing off in a distance the mountain range. And if you look at a mountain range, you see peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, but they all look like they're together. But the closer you get to the mountain, the more you see that the mountains are staggered. So you get to the first mountain, you start climbing, you get to the top, and you look over and you see the next mountain might be 100 miles away with the valley that goes down. Isaiah 61 is the mountain view of his coming. He sees them both together. He sees that not only is the king going to come to set people free from their sins, he's also going to bring vengeance. The first time he came was the first mountain. We came to the mountaintop. We sing about the mountaintop. And now we get to Thessalonians where they've been waiting for his second coming and it gets dark and it gets lonely and it's hard. And so Paul's writing to them, and the first thing he's writing to them is to say, cheer up, God's still there. So the first thing you could say about his coming is that it's the time before his coming is always dark and lonely. If you remember the very first time Jesus came, the very first time Jesus came, there were 400 years of silence by the prophets. Israel was waiting. Zechariah saw the baby being born, and he said, this baby's going to be for setting us free from our enemies. So they were bound and they were captive. Jesus comes, and he doesn't necessarily do that in the minds of the Jews. He doesn't do that even for us. We're still going through afflictions and sufferings. Some of you are. This week, I counseled, I counseled some stories that will break your heart. And there's this question, where is he? That's what the Thessalonians were answering. When's he coming back? And you get scared. When I was a little kid, I, was about, I remember when I was about four years old, I went to this, this store called Gold Circle. Have, have any of you ever heard of Gold Circle? The reason why it's in Ohio, Columbus. Any of you ever heard of Columbus? It's a great city. I'm telling you. I was in Gold Circle in Columbus, Ohio, and Gold Circle is a lot like Walmart. It's a lot like Walmart. And my parents, they always would tell us, kids give us, you know, kind of coaches. They said, if you ever lose us, because we had six kids in my family, if you ever lose us, just go to the cashier and tell them that you lost your mom and dad, and they'll call over the loudspeaker, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Week, someone's lost. Well, we go to Gold Circle. And as we walk in there, we're walking down the aisle, and I look, and there was... There was the toy section, and I was about four, and I went over there, and I was looking at the G.I. Joes and bouncing the Super Balls, you know, and the Nerf footballs, squeezing them. You know, if you ever smelled a Nerf football, they knew they smelled great. After a couple years, they, your dog eats it, and it makes you so mad, but I like a good Nerf football. And if you like football, you know what I'm talking about. And I remember looking up, and my mom and dad aren't there. So I panic, and I remember, and they told me to go to the cashier and tell them you lost your mom and dad. So I go to the cashier, and I tell them I lost my mom and dad. And so over the loudspeaker, Mr. and Mrs. Weeks, we've got a boy here. And all of a sudden, like, like in no time, my dad comes out from this like food section. I think he's even eating some peanuts. He goes, Chris, 
I was, I was there the whole time. You just got so scared and you took off. And it was about as big as Speedway. Like, I was so scared. <laughs> but the point is, we, we act just like that. When anything bad happens, we get scared. It does God care? Because in the dark, when you, when you go through tough times, your mind instantly leaps to abandonment. Um, uh, he... He, he, he doesn't love me. And so what Paul's doing is he's writing to people who actually got his first letter. If you remember, he got the first letter about the, about the rapture where they're going to be caught up. And apparently in between that time, some people got some visions that, uh-oh, actually Jesus did come and you guys missed it. Did you ever meet those people that have those special visions and they're the special ones and they like to scare you? With the, you who said no? You have or yes? Charge, you say no? It's Darren who gets those visions, right? But these, these people are scared. So if you look here in this passage, it'll make more sense to you. Verse 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus, the coming, when he's going to come on this earth, that's what it's about. Not to be too quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. See, they were worried that they missed it. They missed his arrival, and it was too late. So Paul is writing this, and he's saying, don't worry about it. And look at verse 5. Paul even says, don't you remember when I was with you, I told you these things, so don't worry. Hang on. And I think sometimes you and I, like that says, we need constant we need constant reassurance to keep the faith. That's the way we come to church. I once read this story about this husband and wife. They got married. After 40 years, the wife wanted to have marital counseling. The husband and wife go into marital counseling, and the counselor says, well, what's this about? And the wife says, I don't think my husband loves me. I don't think he loves me. And uh, the counselor said, why? I, he never tells me he loves me. And so he turns to the husband and said, well, why don't you love you? Do you love your wife? He said, hey, when I got married and I said my vows, I told her then that I loved her. If I changed my mind, I'd let her know. <laughs> Forty years. And, the, and women are like, what? They, he needs to tell them daily. God, you need God to daily tell you you're okay. He's got you. He's getting peanuts in the other aisle. Hang in there. That's what this is written for, to say he didn't come yet. And then he goes into this thing to say, all right, because I love you, Paul, basically saying, let me tell you what's going to happen. Just so you know if he's come or not. He says what needs to happen before he comes is the rebellion, the great rebellion by the dark one. Look at what it says here in verse 3. And he's basically doing this to reassure them that this has to happen because here's the deal. All of us think we're living in the last days and man, it could never get worse than this. I'll bet you, could you imagine living during the Civil War time when your brother's shooting brothers and people have to get their arms amputated with unsterilized saws and man, it can't get any worse than this. And in World War II where they're shipping Jews off the concentration camps, can't get any worse than this. And I'll bet you Thessalonians are like, this has to be the end. We're being, all of our money's being taken from us. Can't get any worse than this. So Paul's saying, no, it can. And you'll know it. Because, verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. 
For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Rebellion means falling away or people leaving the faith, but also leaving his rule. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. We call him Antichrist. Anti is against Christ, but he wants what Christ has. He wants the reign, the rule. Do you remember the first time Jesus came? Because remember, I told you there's a pattern in coming. The first time Jesus came. There was this man there, his name was Herod. Herod was the king of the Jews, they say. And Herod loved his position in Jerusalem. And the three wise men came. And Herod said, hey, I want to talk to those guys. The three wise men stopped and they're eating with Herod. And Herod said, why are you coming? He goes, well, you guys, you know Herod. You know the star is a sign that the Christ child has come. So we're just going to go see him. We're going to see the newborn king. Herod doesn't like it. And if you remember the Christmas story, it's dark. He kills all the kids up to the age of two that are boys. Because he does not want to give up his rule, his throne. And there's somebody else that doesn't. Basically, Satan has been ruling this world, and he is going to manifest in a person. And that person is going to be resembling Herod. He is going to have title, but number one, he's going to be jealous. He's not going to give up, going to give up his throne. Now, before I go on, some of you, some of you are wondering, and I, I can read your mind. I can read your mind. And here's what you're saying. This is really weird. Why are we talking about Satan during Christmas? Why are we talking about the Antichrist? The Antichrist, that's crazy stuff. And I'm just telling you, you believe crazier things that you think is personally, is very rational. You really believe rising from the dead is rational. It's not. It's crazy. You believe a man actually came here, was crucified, was in the ground for three days, and rose up from the grave, and he ascended into heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and is alive right now, and he can see everything, even your thoughts and your hearts, and you think that's perfectly normal? That's crazy. That's called faith. So, when Scripture says a man actually did this, I believe it with my whole heart. That's why you've come. That's why we did communion. So when the same Scriptures say there's going to be a guy coming, a man at Christ named Satan, it's, it doesn't lie. So we have to deal with it. And when the Antichrist comes, he's going to be a person that the embodiment is going to embody Satan, and he's going to be jealous for Christ's throne. He's also going to have power. And it says, if you look in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So that means Satan's already working in the hearts of people to follow him. Already working in hearts of people to follow him and recruit people to his allegiance. We're going to talk about how he does that in a second. But I want to show you something else that's really kind of scary. Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. So, in a, so what this is saying is somebody right now is restraining him 
from coming full force. Full force. There's some, um, I would say there's some commentators who argue and contemplate, but here's what I think is, is restraining him. I believe the Holy Spirit restrains his work on this earth through the church because the church is the salt and the light. We are to preserve culture and we are to shine truth. And if we don't, who will? The moment we stop persuading, arguing, declaring, nobody else is going to do it. Sure, people might get ticked off at you, but who else is going to do it? I believe it's us and our, our goodness, our gospel presentation, our prayer that restrains his power on this earth. I, was, um, I like to go online a lot to discuss because hopefully I will, hopefully people will listen. Sometimes I'll go against some bitter, angry people because I believe things like I believe God has made a man a man and a woman a woman and I believe that's the right design and people don't believe that anymore. I believe a child in a womb is really a human being. People don't believe that anymore. I do believe in marriage between a man and a woman. That is the best thing for a society. I do believe that because I believe Scripture teaches that. But I try to discuss it very, what I would say, winsomely, grace-filled. And the reason I do that is because I believe it's the best thing for society. It makes a healthy, good society. People are mad. I mean, they're mad. You know that. They get mad. And I, about six, seven years ago, I thought I used to be arguing against them to turn their opinion, but I realized actually the angriest people are usually trying to convince themselves that they're right. And then when you argue with them in a kind way and, and give rational facts, what I, what I never really thought about is a lot of people are listening in. They just don't want to engage because they don't want to get attacked. And then they'll come up to you secretly and they'll say, that, that really was persuasive, that, changed my opinion on a lot of things. We need to talk to people and not just shut up because we're scared of people getting mad at us. Because I think we are restraining some of this rebellion by our good works and by our words. You've probably heard this famous saying that um, you know, preach the gospel but when necessary use words. I don't buy that. Use words. They're necessary. That's what the gospel is. It's words. But here's the deal. He's currently recruiting people, I believe, from the bride. He uses his power of lawlessness to deceive and persuade. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 is kind of heavy. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Okay, stop on that for a second. The activity of Satan. Activity of Satan. That means Satan's abilities will be given to the lawless one. Does Satan have any abilities? I'll, I'll bring you a reference to two things, two stories. One's in the Old Testament. This guy named Job, he was a great guy. And Job, Job was really a godly man, like godly. And Satan came up to God and said, look at Job. Oh, he worships you because you take care of him, kind of. This is my paraphrase. And God said, all right, I'm going to take my hands off him. 
Go after him, Satan. Do what you want. Go after him. Just don't kill him. So Satan had the ability to organize raiding groups and arms to take his family stuff. He was able to call fire down from heaven, and he was able to send massive winds to knock over everything and kill his kids. And it's attributed to Satan. He's got power. So if he's coming to deceive you, it's not a game. As, uh, I was talking to Jared the first service about you know, the, this one statement in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is down in the mines of Moria. And he says, there are darker and deeper things at work down here. And I think you and I live in a world where there's darker and deeper things happening than you could ever imagine. So what does he do? Here's what he does. And this, is, this will cause controversy. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. First thing he can do is he can do signs, wonders, miracles. He can do things. He can do things. Remember the Old Testament? Moses took his staff and made a snake. So did the uh, priests that were under Satan's spell. Plagues he could do. But he also can do things that look really godly. In, I grew up in a faith that is called Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism really likes what's called mysterium or mystery things. I have an aunt who believes in what's called the shaking of the sun in Magadori. And she's a cripple. She was a cripple. She doesn't live anymore, but she's crippled. So she paid $20,000 to go to Magadori to get some water from a river in Magadori so she could anoint herself with that water and be healed because supposedly some girls said they saw the sun shaking and people see the sun shaking. And she died a cripple. I have a grandmother and grandfather that moved their whole life up to Wisconsin to follow a lady that was doing like she had stigmata coming out of her hand. Stigmata is where blood flowed down. And she would speak from the virgin mother. And if you speak like that, very pious, they believe it. Hook, line, and sinker. It's all sensationalism. They gave their life to it for 10 years. And it turned out to be a complete fraud. We have churches on Protestant side where people are getting gold teeth, filling their fillings. Other people do this. Some churches teach this thing called sucking from the dead where they'll go to dead people who were faith healers and they'll stand on the grave and they'll suck their energy then they'll heal them but my question is why did the faith healer die in the first place what's he got a, why has he got a grave i don't understand i don't get it kind of weird you know like that he's a great faith healer but he's in a grave why he did not that great not that great because we all die but people love the show and then the second thing if if you keep reading, and with wicked deception from those who are perishing because they refuse something. They refuse the truth. The truth I'll talk about in a second. But the second way they get people, they re, Satan recruits people, is verse 11 and 12. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They would rather have pleasure in wicked things than to follow the truth. What is the truth? I was doing a research on that word. Let me just quickly tell you what the truth is. 
John, Jesus says, they're my words and my words are the truth and my words will set you free. So the truth of Jesus' words, specifically the ones you find in Scripture. Galatians say they're about Christ and him crucified. That's the truth. Galatians also says truth is obedience to what Jesus said. That's truth. Ephesians said we need to put this on as a belt of truth so that we can not be encumbered by all of these things that draw our attention. Colossians says truth is the message of the gospel. Timothy said it is not false. Timothy also said it's the way things really are. Truth corresponds to reality, what really is. So for instance, let me just... Just look at it like this. If a, if a boy is born a boy, biologically, truth says he's a boy. It's the way things really are. But I, I feel like I'm, a, I'm not a boy. I had a guy in my office that felt like he's a wolf. Is he a wolf? Truth isn't quarrelsome. Truth leads you to Repentance. Truth is not a fullness of information. It's a knowledge that leads to godliness. I was thinking of an illustration. How can I, how can I explain this? So here's what the Bible says. We are his church, his bride. Okay, so Jesus, Jesus is our husband. Jesus is the one that loves us. And he wants to have a relationship with us. So if we bring this down to, it's a model, it's a picture. Think of your own marriage. So let's say I'm talking about my wife and I. My wife and I at one time, when we first met, there were signs and miracles days. You know what I'm talking about? I would see her and I, like I got visions of angels. You know, whoa. I was driving with my wife when we were, we weren't even married yet. We were driving through a blizzard. I didn't even notice it. I hit, an, I hit a bridge and I did two 360s and I landed in the side and I just kept going. It was a miracle. You know, like Great, this, this is great things God has brought. Look at how miracles happen. And I think sometimes God needs miracles to get a guy to fall in love with a girl sometimes. But then if I drove like that, now my wife would say, quit driving like that. Just hit you upside the head. Go 20 over an ice bridge. That's a good thing. Yeah, but don't you want to do 360s going 80 miles an hour and wait for the miracle? No, I'm done with miracles. I'm done. What we have now is called communication <laughs> instead of miracles. And communication sometimes hard. Sometimes we disagree. Sometimes we have to be patient and kind. But, but I, want, I, want the, I want the thrill. I want the candlelight. Give me the big stuff. That's what some people want out of church. Give me the show, man. I want the feeling. Well, God wants to have a relationship with you by faith. He gives you his word because he loves you. And then he says, obey it. And if you obey it, oh, you'll start shining like a star in the sky. But you got to obey what it says. Now give me the show. But then you got some people who get really tired of their marriage. You know what they do? They go to bars and strip joints because it's pleasure in unrighteousness. Because this is too boring. You know what I mean? Give me this. Give me this. What this is, is this is this is a side now where people no longer, I'm just telling you, they no longer respect the Bible. They just don't. They don't know it. Let me just say that. They don't know it. I'm on this group that I'm trying to help people that really have been hurt by some, some what I'd say, some toxic ministries. And it's you know, kind of a, 
invited group I'm in, and they asked me to come because I'm a pastor, and there's some stuff that goes on. But every time I try to use the Bible to help people, there's, will you quit giving us that stuff? Quit giving us advice from the Bible. It doesn't. People don't respect God's word anymore. And you know what? Look what happens because of that. They are open to deception. So, you know, it says in verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. I... They refused it. And so if they don't want the truth, God will send them a delusion. All right, you want a show? I'll give you a show. Keep you excited. Keep you on edge every week's a new thing, but it has to be better the next week. Just remember that. What you first come for, if you don't get more of it, you're going to leave. So it's got to be bigger, better, more exciting. Same on this side. But this is different. This is an inward reality. Faith is inward. So what happens is the rebel is bringing people to his rebellious side through recruitment. And do you know what this does to Jesus? It makes him angry. I was thinking through this. Actually, um, I was praying through this this morning, and I didn't put the slide up, but go back two slides. Go back to the next slide. So here's, here's how I described for you already the Antichrist. But do you know that Christ is exactly like this? <laughs> He's jealous. He's jealous. Antichrist is jealous for his throne. The Christ is jealous for his bride. He's going to defend her with everything he has. The Antichrist is always working through scheming and lying. So is the Christ through his spirit. He's always working. And he works through his gospel to call you. And here's what's crazy. Did you know Jesus right now is under restraint? He's being held back by the Father until the Father tells him it's time to go. It's time to leave. And when he arrives, go to the last slide, his arrival is going to be something else. Revelation says it's going to be a time when his glory is going to shine out and it will not be shared with the devil. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 is so clear. And Paul's almost, I think people get so enchanted with the idea of Satan. They really, you know, it's so interesting, but God won't have it. Look at verse 8. Says, and the lawless one will be revealed. Okay, so he's talking about the lawless one, but he's like, I'm not going to give him top billing. Let's let's give top billing the right place. Lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill. <laughs> He'll kill him. No choice. He'll kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing. So you could call him a zero, a loser. Bring to nothing. The Antichrist will be brought to nothing by the appearance of Jesus' coming, his bright glory. And he's going to come back, and he's going to rescue his bride. Now, some people ask the question, when is this going to happen? Because Paul talked a lot to them that the rebellion needs to occur. And I think there is, you know, we said we're not going to give dates and times. But there's, I think when you look at the church, there's some characteristics that are apparent when he comes. We find it in Revelation. Go to the book of Revelations, chapter 3. Revelation is a book that's written to seven churches. And they each have different qualities. 
and I'm going to read you the last church because I believe there's something that is associated with the way the churches work out to also history, how history is going to play out. And the characteristics of the last church he mentions, I believe, is going to be the characteristics of the last church and what they're going to be like before he comes. So Revelations 3, the last church he writes to, is called the church of Laodicea. Now as I read this, ask yourself, does this describe the church in our time? Starting in verse 14, Revelations 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, or the truthful one, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus is writing this letter to the church in Laodicea. It's a group of people who lived in the city of Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. What does that mean? There's been a lot of discussions but the idea is that they are they're in the middle. They're lukewarm. They, they don't have any convictions. They don't really care. Or they're really wishy-washy. This morning I was listening to the radio. And uh, I get up pretty early on Sunday mornings to pray and go over my sermon. And I listen to this radio station. A lot of times I'll have a priest, Episcopalian priest, a Roman Catholic priest, and a lady that's a theologian from Hope. And they'll discuss, they'll read passages, but they'll discuss the Bible together. And you know, they're very learned. They just are. You could tell by the way they talk. They talk like that. Which I'm, am I mocking them? I shouldn't mock. Chris, don't mock. Okay, I'm sorry. They're very smart people. And so when they're talking, they were talking about how they have this interfaith group where there's Christians that meet with Muslims, that meet with Hindus, and they meet with Sikhs and all these other religions in Grand Rapids because they all want to get together and just find common unity. This one guy said, I was at the end of one of these, I was listening to one of my friends who's a Christian. He's talking to an Islamic iman, and he said to him, if I could, I, I would try to persuade you to what I believe, but this isn't the place. And it said, oh, that made me so mad. He wants to persuade somebody to his faith? How dare, you know. We're here for unity. And then they said, today we're going to read from the book of Luke, about when John the Baptist comes. And John the Baptist said this. He said, repent because the axe is at the root of the trees and if you are not showing fruits of repentance, you're going to be thrown into the fire and face wrath. And they didn't know what to say. Like, you're supposed to give comment on that. And they go, um, well, sometimes God does say some hard things. Maybe he's talking about, uh, not people, but just works themselves. Uh, I don't know. Uh, let's, let's talk about what do you hang up for decorations at Christmas time at your church? Like all of a sudden, here's the harshest thing, but they don't want to tell the truth because they're lukewarm. Nobody wants to tell the truth anymore. If Jesus is coming back like this, aren't you a little bit scared? So what were the Laodiceans like? I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich in white garments. Clothe yourselves and shame of your nakedness may not be seen. To those I love I reprove and I discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door, knock. Jesus stands at the door, knocks. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. This is a beautiful verse. Look at verse 21. To one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, the true king. I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. One of my favorite books is um, it's Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. I really like that, that book by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Very good book. Did you ever read that book, Andrew? No? I thought you re- liked to read. You should read that book. All right. Anyhow, I love this book, and I've, I've told this story a lot, but I like it. But I want you to think through this a second. You know the story. The story that is written in the original is about this guy who was born in an English family, and in the way the original is written, they, he comes from the highest breed of society. So mentally, he's at the top. And then he's abandoned because his family died, and some apes raised him who are the highest at the physical side of the chain. So this one baby is born together. Not only is he brilliant, but he's super strong. You guys know the story of Tarzan. Swings in trees, fights apes, tears up lions like nothing. Well, the story gets good when another family is shipwrecked on the coast of Africa. They go into the deep jungles and they have a daughter there that's very beautiful and her name is Jane. Jane is a little naive, however, Because Jane likes to dream and walk along the paths in the jungle, sniffing flowers and picking bananas. It's wonderful. But Tarzan's, he's captivated. So he swings above her, watching her, keeping quiet. And while she's walking through the forest, he's thinking to himself, she is not too bright. Look at there's snakes all around her. Animals, one snake's ready to get her, big cobra. He swings down silently and grabs that snake and rips it in half. Goes back up in the tree and keeps watching. Jane's still, ha la la, smelling daisies. And there's a giant ape coming her way, one of the meanest. He knows it. And Tarzan swings down with a big club and clubs him right in the head and knocks that ape out. Ha la 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 la. And then he, he's saying, doesn't she see the king of the forest, this lion is slowly stalking her. And it's getting ready to pounce. And right when it pounces, he shows himself to her and he grabs the lion by the throat and rips the lion's mouth. And Jane just sees this God right in front of her. She had no idea. When Jesus comes out of the sky, he's been saving us from snakes and apes all day long. You don't even know it. You're looking at G.I. Joe's in the toy section. But he's been saving you all day long, and when he comes out to finally destroy the lion, I'm telling you, you are going to be utterly amazed. The problem with some of you is you think I'm just telling a story. A Christmas story. It's not. It's the truth. And if you don't believe the truth, be careful because you might be the next one to be deceived. God will give you over to it if you don't want it. If we don't tell this story, who will? No one will.